listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant, it's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. With the Golden State Warriors completing their dominant season beating the Cavaliers in Game 5 of the NBA Finals on Monday, we've reached the conclusion of the 2016-17 NBA season. But for us analysts, there's no time to rest as basketball never sleeps and the 2017 NBA Draft is right around the corner. To help us get ready for that, we've brought in two experts, one from each draft-focused show on the Almighty Baller Network. Our first guest today is Sean Derenthal, host of Ode to Odin. Before he started that project, Sean's claim to fame was that he once blocked Jimmer Fredette in a pickup game while they were both attending BYU. Next up is Javier Pesquera from What's on Draft. Javier is joining us all the way from Sweden, but he's originally from Spain. One of his first basketball memories is from the 2004 Athens Olympics, where the USA men's team finished third. He remembers noticing during a game that the head coach of the Spanish national team, Mario Pesquera, looked a lot like his dad, and when he asked his dad about it, learned that they were actually cousins. Both of these guys, Javier and Sean, as you'll hear, are inexhaustible resources of information, so I won't waste any more time on these introductions. Enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us, Sean. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Being part of like the Almighty Baller Network, I have listened to like every podcast at least once, and I've listened to your guys more than once. So <laughs> take that for what it's worth. But I, I really like your guys' angle. I think it's I think it's unique. You guys are obviously smart, so uh, I, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thanks a lot. That's good to hear. We really appreciate your podcast as well. As the host of Ode to Odin, can you? Describe the methodology you use when you're evaluating the talent of these prospects and also how you look at when it comes closer to draft time, team perceptions of these players when you look at the mock draft. Yeah, so that's a really good question. <laughs> Obviously, there's a, there's a lot there. I think that it's it's definitely like an evolving thing, right? The way that we understand draft prospects, understand what translates how it fits to the more modern NBA these things are all like pretty fluid and obviously we get better at it as we do it for sure my last episode if listeners want to I basically went through this in like a ton of detail actually not my last episode the episode right before number 33 was somebody named Cole Zwicker who is who's awesome also on the Almighty Baller Network uh, with a podcast called What's on Draft him and a couple other awesome guys but basically I'll just say that what I try to do is I try to watched a ton of games of each prospect back to back to back to back to back. And I take an insane amount of notes and I try to the best that I can, like wipe my slate clean every play because I read a lot as well. I can't, I can't watch every game of every player, you know? So I, there are a lot of guys that I think in the draft community that are really, really good at it. And there's some guys that, that, I, that I don't think are good, basically. <laughs> and so I just, I read as much as I can from the good guys. And I know that because I do that, I'm already like a little bit biased, right? So I try to, after every play, like kind of just say like, okay, just evaluate this on its own. And then I go back through my notes and I'll just read for patterns. And, you know, one play doesn't mean anything. Two, three plays doesn't really mean anything. 
But, you know, after five or six times, I'm kind of saying the same thing about a player roughly, you know, you kind of start picking up patterns. And obviously this is really, really subjective. Uh, So there are a lot of statistics that help. You have to put context to those statistics, obviously, like just basic summary statistics, you know, like true shooting percentage and, and, and all of that, like how well they shoot from different areas of the floor, assist percentage, you know, block percentage, steal percentage are, are statistically very high indicators of, of NBA success. But then obviously there are like really good models out there. And of course, the models are never perfect, but they can often identify some of the sleepers, some of the guys that, that we don't really think about. So if, if somebody is really high in a model per se, and um, I'm not very high on them just because of, you know, watching their games and scouting them as much as I can, then, you know, I'll go back and I'll try to understand maybe maybe why statistically, because I kind of understand most of these models are very similar in, in what they weight. They're based mostly on the box score stuff. Anyway, so I try to do it that way. And also, well, I don't work in a lab right now. My, my previous job, I was in research and I would have to, you know, present my research and my experiments and interpret data and also justify every decision that I made. So I often, as I'm watching these guys, I'll try to like take a stand, like say he's good at this, right? Or he's bad at this. And I'll try to to give that some kind of magnitude, right? It's not just, you're not just good at something or you're bad at something, you know, you can be kind of good at something, give it some sense of magnitude and then justify it with as much evidence as I can, as if I'm being grilled in one of my lab meetings, right? Where my labbies, my friends are trying to tear apart as much of my argument as possible, see if there are any like major logical flaws. So I kind of do that to myself as much as possible, which obviously you're going to miss a lot of stuff because you're never your own. Sometimes you're your worst critic, but you're never your best critic, right? <laughs> because you're so biased, obviously. So I, I try to avoid as much of that stuff as I can by doing it that way. But then again, like at the end of the day, I can't watch every game of every player. And so I lean on a lot of other smart guys as well. And try to just kind of come to an average of what I see and what other people see that I, that I trust and what some of these models sees. And uh, I, I think that's probably a long-winded answer for saying that, I, that <laughs> this is all really nebulous. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm trying to just eliminate as much of like obvious error, sources of error that are that are out there in draft evaluation. You know, I come from an academic background too. So I know what you're talking about in terms of presenting evidence and having to fend off all these different challenges from all sides. But (laughs) we know that these prospects, when they're being evaluated by teams, there's a lot of focus on team need, different teams need different things. But with that in mind, do you see any sort of tier structure developing among this draft class? Definitely. In fact, that's normally how I do it. Um, Until like, I don't know, until right up until the draft, I don't put a ton of thought into a ladder ranking, you know, like, like a big board. Uh, I just have them in tiers because I think that there is so much variability in these guys, you know, and it's not just variability, like who will be better and who won't be better. A lot of it's context. And a lot of it is like, there's, there's often a philosophy that's talked about where you just kind of draft for upside where, where you, where you kind of predict like player A will be on average, a worse player than player B, but he has, you know, more potential to be like a star. So I'm going to draft him because that star potential is, a, is the only thing that really matters in the NBA. I don't know that I completely subscribe to that, but that's another, you know, you should factor in upside knowing that it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of risk in that upside, but the payout means a lot. Obviously, there's only five players on a court, a single individual in basketball means a lot. So there's definitely a tier system. If you want me to kind of go through my just first few tiers, I can really quickly, if you want, we can start like getting into the individuals. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so the number one guy is definitely Markel Fultz. Has been probably since the first few months of the season. He's, I think, in a tier by himself. Other people kind of have Lonzo Ball with him or even above him. I I don't see it at all, honestly. I think it's Markel Fultz and then, frankly, a giant gap, like a really giant gap. And then the second tier, for me, three players, Josh Jackson out of Kansas, Lonzo Ball from UCLA, and Jonathan Isaac from Florida State, all for different reasons. If I had to choose kind of the best player in a vacuum, the guy that I thought would end up being the best player kind of in the average outcome, I think it's probably Josh Jackson. Offensively, he's not going to be a great creator, although he's kind of adequate attacking closeouts. Um, He has like a decent handle. He's going to play the two or the threes. He's a wing player. His calling card really comes on defense and his intensity. He's pretty athletic. Like he's definitely on the higher, like the spectrum of athleticism. He's up there for sure. But he doesn't have like the greatest lateral agility. So like guarding ones probably isn't going to be his thing. But twos, threes, weaker fours, like stretchy weak fours that aren't going to just be able to punish him in the post. Definitely he, he can, you know, he has that kind of versatility, defensive versatility that, you know, we covet so much, especially after just watching these finals. Lonzo Ball, everybody's heard of him, obviously. And his father, obviously, we don't, we don't have to go there, but... <laughs> I don't know this guy. He has not been in the news at all. <laughs> Lonzo Ball is super, super interesting. If you told me, like, five years from now that he was the best player out of this draft, I would say, okay, like, I wouldn't be surprised. If you told me that he was, you know, somewhere that he was basically unplayable, I also wouldn't be too surprised, honestly. <laughs> Statistically, he's great for several reasons that reasons that I think are a little bit deceptive. He has an incredibly high efficiency because he basically only took three-pointers and shots right at the rim that are assisted. So like most point guards, we ask for like a little bit of creation. Lonzo Ball doesn't do a lot of creation, honestly. Like his best creation is probably just this like a step back three, which he's good at and he shoots at like a reasonable efficiency, especially from like NBA range. But, you know, he's not the classic guard like a Markel Fultz that's going to be able to break somebody down in isolation or in kind of like a semi-advantage situation based on some action like a pin down or a high screen and roll, something like that. He doesn't even attack closeouts or like really bad mismatches very well. Obviously, his strengths are in his IQ, his feel for the game. That shows up on defense off the ball and in his passing acumen in transition. He creates unbelievable opportunities for uh, his teammates. So it's kind of like, you know, does this superpower that he has to kind of maybe see in the future and just unbelievably accurate and really, really smart passes, is that going to supersede the obvious weaknesses that he has? And I don't know, who knows? I think that he's very interesting and he's his upside dictates, I think, that you have to draft him probably in the top five somewhere. So yeah, and then Jonathan Isaac, really quickly, really interesting guy, never will be an offensive creator whatsoever, but is a very long and not super polished, but very good defender right now. And I think he even has more room to grow on the defensive end. He's going to be a stud, like a very, very versatile stud. I think if he puts on a little bit of weight, he can play the five, especially in the playoffs where it seems to go small. I mean, maybe that's just a factor of which teams are good right now. You know, maybe that trend will switch. But definitely the four, the three, you know, if if you have to switch him onto twos, even ones late in the shot clock, his length is enough to kind of bother them on pull-ups and also at the rim, kind of trailing behind them, LeBron style, you know. 
I, I really, yeah. really like Isaac. He's the guy that probably people will say, oh, wow, you know, that's maybe like a little bit of a reach. Probably not too much of a reach, but but there. And then I'll just go really quickly through through the rest of like maybe my next three tiers. Mm-hmm. I have Dennis Smith by himself in tier three. He's kind of a divisive prospect. In the next tier in tier four, I have Frank Nilakina, Zach Collins, and Jason Tatum. And then in tier five, I have Donovan Mitchell and Malik Monk. Okay, so a lot of really good information. So there are a number of things I wanted to follow up on. First, I thought it was really interesting what you said about Lonzo Ball. I've heard this also a little earlier in the process that he mostly just shot threes or layups for the most part. And that's kind of where analytics have gone. And people like Daryl Morey and other um, analytics-minded GMs want their team strategy to be headed, reducing the number of inefficient mid-range shots. I'm wondering to what extent Lonzo Ball's propensity to take those so-called smart shots may entice or, or really attract GMs around the league. And I'm also just curious to hear where you think Lonzo Ball is right now with the Lakers. I know there was talk about him maybe looking a little bit out of shape in that first workout but that seems to me like that may be a little bit overblown because UCLA just played such a frenetic pace all season and he obviously had a very successful year over there at point guard yeah so two interesting things for sure so just the first thing I don't think that it's a positive there are some people that will argue and these are like Lonzo heads and I think they're in they're in the minority they'll argue that Lonzo's shot selection was by choice that he was avoiding mid-rangers although he could get them mm-hmm. there's some question whether off the dribble going what is it right or left i guess going right is a little awkward for him because of some wonky shot mechanics i think that's super overblown i'm, I'm not sure how much i buy into that basically what i think it was is his inability to get to those spots right you did mention that earlier that he he was yeah. not really as much of a creator as you would like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are guys in the NBA who take efficient mid-rangers. The best player of all time, Michael Jordan, <laughs> and I know that he's kind of out of the analytics era, but I think it's worth noting that if you're super, super good at the mid-range, which Jordan was like incredibly efficient at the mid-range, and like his shooting percentage is really high, although he that's where he lived, especially later in his career. Chris Paul, that's often where he lives, right? At the elbows are his spots. Kevin Durant has a little spot near the baseline that he loves, especially when he was playing at OKC. James Harden playing for Daryl Morey, right? Morey Ball kind of started all this. He actually takes a decent amount of mid-range, right? You're trying to like Mm -hmm. limit that, but oftentimes the defense will give you that shot. And when, when that shot is open, you know, analytics also says that that can be a very efficient shot if, you know, the guy's six feet off and contesting or whatever, you know, if he, yeah. somebody's not contesting you and that's like a good spot for you, right? Mm-hmm. So James Harden at the elbow is still an efficient shot. So yeah, I would say that that's not something that's going to entice because the fact that he couldn't get them, I think really only speaks to his lack of creation and not like some kind of next level decision making. And the other question that you had about like the rumors of, of that who the freak knows, man? <laughs> right now, there's it's crazy. Yeah, there's tons of smokescreen stuff. Right, everybody's pumping out false information. Yeah, and some of it might be real, but there's no way that I could tell you with any certainty. I think you probably should lean that most of the stuff is kind of garbage. Although I did see that Lonzo his conditioning. I don't think was was great all the time. I thought there was there maybe they some also thought was that. nursing some type of hamstring injury, so he may not have been able to train much since the season ended i I thought i I read that 
Yeah, I haven't heard anything about that, but that's that's definitely possible. It's, I don't know. Yeah, I just wouldn't read too much. It's interesting because when the lottery comes out and then Fultz rises to the top of all these draft boards and most people are in the consensus that he's going to go to the Celtics at number one, Lonzo Ball's from Los Angeles. We know about all the ridiculousness surrounding his dad that he only wants to play for the Lakers, stuff like that, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And so... For a little bit, everyone was assuming he's definitely going to the Lakers. And now it's hard to know really if the Lakers just want to create some doubt or if they have legitimate skepticism over whether or not he's the right guy. Josh Jackson, I think you talked about him a little bit. I think it seems like a lot of teams really love his defensive versatility. And I know you like Isaac defensively too. Like in today's NBA, that's something that's increasingly being valued more and more. Yeah, yeah. So the problem, I guess, with Josh Jackson, while he does bring all of that, the reason that you wouldn't take him is, well, one, there's some off-court issues. I don't know a ton about that stuff. It actually looks like a little bit scary. Teams obviously do their due diligence, tons of background checks and, and that kind of thing. So they'll know if like any of that stuff is like a real problem, if if it's a pattern with his character and blah, blah, blah. But his intensity on the court has always shown like, you know, he's going to be a hard worker, I guess. You know, he's not going to make super dumb decisions like on the court at least. But offensively, his shot is is the big issue. So in the finals, I think we saw that one-way players, it's, it's difficult to play these guys. And that if you are passable in team defense, if you're not like maybe super athletic, you know, you're not going to be a lockdown defender, but you're passable in team defense, but you're good on offense, you know, you can provide some spacing for your stars. Well, then that guy might be more valuable than a, than a really, really good defender who can't shoot at all, unless you're paired like with Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, in which case there's going to be a lot, a lot of space anyway, right? Particularly because of like the really intelligent actions that they run off the ball. So Josh Jackson, there's a good chance that he won't ever be much better than just like kind of a below, like a slightly below average starter, just because his shot is a huge question. He was kind of streaky during the year and it seemed a little fake. And so his his percentages might be a bit inflated, He's, he's just got like a super long, really like he brings it down really far. He's got like a really wonky kind of hitch in his shot. If that gets ironed out, then I think, you know, watch out. Josh Jackson could be a really good player, like a potential all-star maybe. But if not, then he's just going to be like a really intense, good defender who's going to give you intelligent passing, you know, good offensive rebounding for his position and like good offensive awareness, but never like a primary scorer and probably never a secondary scorer either. I don't know if this is really a question. It might be a statement, but it has to be <laughs> hard to evaluate guys sometimes when they only spend one year in college and the streakiness. So Josh Jackson, I thought he finished the year really strong from three, whereas the first half of the year was not very good at all. So one could argue he's trending in a positive direction, but I know you'd be skeptical of such a small sample size and really thinking about maybe if they played 10 more games, he could regress back down to the mean. I mean, that just seems like, I know you're looking at a lot of things and it's not only outcome, whether or not the shot goes down, but that just seems like another challenge in trying to evaluate these guys. Yeah, I think you're right. So we were talking a little bit before that I'm going to have a guest on soon named Andrew Johnson, and he does this great thing where he projects uh, with a couple different models, and they're they're very very similar. But his latest article on Nylon Calculus, he has these shooting projections, and he basically just projects your your three point 
I don't know if he projects three point rate or just three point percentage, but with I don't know all of the factors, but I, th- I think it's like free throw percentage and three point rate. Those two are actually the two best indicators of how well you're shoot, you'll shoot from three in the NBA. Not so much your percentage, although your percentage is kind of just below those, right? So it's not like it's it's meaningless. And then, like you said, college sample size is smaller anyway. Right. They're playing you know less than half of the, of the amount of games that people in the NBA are, you know, unless you're counting an NBA team that doesn't go to the playoffs and a player who plays in the NCAA tournament pretty far. And also, Josh Jackson wasn't taking a lot, right? He's taking like 3.3 per 40. So even in his case, or in Lonzo Ball's case, he took a lot more. He took like a, almost 200 threes or something on the season, which is a lot more meaningful than than Jackson's. I don't have his total number in front of me, but obviously it was a lot smaller. So I think you're right. I don't know that it has so much to do with the fact that it's just like one year because a lot of these freshmen, the freshmen who play well, actually their statistics are pretty descriptive of how they will be in the NBA. But yeah, just the overall college sample size is, is the problem there for sure. And, and then also, sorry, before you go ahead, Lauren, with your question, just wanted to make a quick statement. Just in looking at all these mock drafts, they're basically all freshmen at the top anyway. So yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we have little choice but to look at the freshmen, I think, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I think it also can be agreed that probably the biggest strength of this class is the strength of its point guards. I think you named maybe five or six that are in your top four tiers, Sean. In total, how would you compare the strengths of this class to other draft classes we've seen in recent years? Well, I think it's good. Now, I say that with like a, a little bit of a caveat. Generally, NBA fans, and I don't know if it's a problem like in NBA front offices or, or not. I, I think it's probably not. In some like antiquated ones, it, it might be still, but I think there's still an expectation that's just super overblown for like every lottery player. If you're like a first round pick, then you're going to be good. I, that's that's not, not the case at all, right? Like usually there are like two all-stars that come out of every draft and the, that second all-star isn't always like a really good one, right? Like maybe he made the all-star game like twice in his career or something, right? In like a not so stacked East or something. So basically my point is that expectations should be lowered a lot and by realistic expectations i think this draft is is good it's definitely above average it came in and people were talking about like potentially seven all-stars blah 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 best like one of the best drafts in recent memory blah blah blah, all that stuff there are some drafts like that obviously 2003 what was the the 2000 what was the darren williams chris paul 2005 yeah Yeah. that that was also like pretty good marvin Um, williams no i'm just kidding (laughs) Who turned out to be like a, a, a decent player? I like, like not Bogut, off realistic yeah. expectations. Yeah, and Bogut wasn't bad either, even though he yeah. should have got number one, but it's solid defensive. Oh, but if he player. didn't get injured. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like finding a starter if you're drafting five to ten is is what you're aiming for, right? Like on a bad team, yeah. you know, maybe he's like a good starter. On a good team, maybe he's like their worst starter. But that's like the realistic expectation. Besides the first pick, there's a very small chance that you're that you're going to get an all star, and so back to your like original question, I think that this draft is good on average. It's not going to be what everybody says that it is, but that's probably just because we all have overblown expectations anyway. I know by the nature of this question, it, it'll be a little bit hard for you to answer, but <laughs> I feel like every year in recent memory, you see a guy that gets selected seemingly out of nowhere, yeah. who is really far down mock drafts but then like is taken as sort of a, a flyer super high risk high reward i'm thinking of guys like todd mccare last year going back farther maybe a Giannis type do you do you mm. see anyone like that in this draft well 
Okay. So you're right. This is incredibly difficult to, <laughs> to answer. Because right, I'm no. asking you, so, like, someone who you won't, won't expect, <laughs> but your job is right, to make exactly. expectations. <laughs> it's like, who am I expecting to be bad that will actually be really good? Like, so if, look, maybe we can do this a couple ways. Who is somebody like, what's his name? He was a four-year starter at Virginia, and he played... Thank you. Thank you. So who's the Malcolm Brogdon? Who's like the the savvy veteran who's going to play better than than everybody thinks? Somebody that I just recently have kind of been thinking might have a role just because of his feel, I think, is so good. Dylan Brooks, uh, a junior oh, out of Oregon. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, yeah. He's, he's competent at almost everything. Now, he's not super athletic. He played a position that he won't really be able to play in the NBA unless he's on like super small lineups. But I think that on the wing on offense, he's going to give you adequate shooting, intelligence as far as passing and understanding, you know, the sets and the kind of purpose of the actions. He's going to be a good off-ball screener, that kind of thing. On defense, he's not going to mess up defensive rotations. Now, you know, if you put him in pick and roll a lot, he's obviously going to suffer quite a bit. But I think he could be kind of that guy. If we're going like the Giannis route, or uh, I don't know whoever whoever else is like a good example of somebody who's super athletic, kind of outstripped his skill projection. Maybe someone like Devin Robinson. Devin Robinson, a junior out of Florida, just a freak. Kind of just looking at him, he like looks like an NBA All Star. He's six eight, like a seven foot wingspan or or more. He weighs like two hundred pounds, probably something around there. Like he's pretty ripped. And you see this guy move. And like you watch Florida games or you're watching some other SEC prospect, you know, like I'll be watching maybe like PJ Dozier from South Carolina and they're playing Florida and Devin Robinson will jump off the page. Like, man, this guy is an NBA player for sure. But then like, if you just watch him individually, he makes every mistake you can possibly make (laughs) on defense. He's horrible. Like his feel is bad. His skill is like super underdeveloped. So he's one of those athletic guys. If everything else fills in, I'd rather bet on on the Dylan Brooks type than than the athletic guy. The athletic guy that kind of pans out more than you'd think is kind of the rare guy. And usually there's like some skilled stuff there that people don't really remember. Like Giannis was actually probably a little more skilled and coordinated uh, for his crazy length than we really remember or that anyone ever knew because, you know, there wasn't great film on him. So I, I guess my answer is Dylan Brooks and very, very <laughs> possibly or very, very not possibly uh, Devin Robinson. And then I should also throw in there Harry Giles, just because he's a mystery box, right? With with the injury stuff, he was projected super high. His motor's good. His feels like always been, I think, kind of bad, but he's super athletic. And if that ever comes back, then he could be somebody that definitely outstrips where he's drafted. We could really talk to you all day about this. I don't really <laughs> watch college basketball except for the tournament for the most part. So it's been a pleasure for me just soaking up as much knowledge of, of yours as I can and <laughs> And we know you have an interview too. You have to talk to Andrew Johnson. You want to talk to him. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so this will be the last one, I promise. Okay, yeah. So the age restriction thing is a discussion that never really went away. It's been, seems like, ramping up lately. Adam Silver has been kind of non-committal about it. It seems like the league's official position, though, is that they'd like the age to be raised from 19 to maybe 20, but the Players Association will never agree to that. And if they had their say, it would be lowered to 18. So I'm curious your opinion. You watch so many college freshmen. A lot of them are really good. I know this is a very complicated question, and it could even go into areas like 
the academics and if players know they're just going to be there for one year and don't even go to class, what damage does that do educationally? But just feel free to take this in whatever direction you want. <laughs> I, I just think it's an interesting topic that we could end on here. Yeah, yeah. So this is, well, okay. So this is my personal opinion. This is my take on it. This is me kind of reading the tea leaves. I think that if we're just looking at this from like, what will actually happen? Like usually like it's about economic motives, right? Yeah. Um, the NBA obviously has a lot invested in their players and uh, especially the way that the rookie deals are structured right now in the current CBA. Like if your draft pick hits, it's extremely valuable, right? So they want as much time as they can evaluating these guys. Obviously it behooves them to push off their entrance into the league as much as they can, because one, they'll be older and they'll be more developed. So maybe they won't just be, you know, the first two or three years of their rookie scale contract. They're like, not that good, right? You get them when they're better. Mm -hmm. And then you can lock them up for eight years or nine years, depending, whatever. From the players union side, I think it's a bit of a fake issue. It will always come down to like in negotiations, it will always be kind of this fake issue where on principle, I think the head of the union right now is Michelle Roberts, right? So yeah. Michelle Roberts, can, they have this ideal that, yeah, there should be like just kind of labor ideals, right? There should there should be freedom of of movement and all that kind of stuff, economic morals, whatever, of, of the labor party, all that kind of stuff. And so I think the players kind of buy into that. But when it comes to like actually the numbers, they're always going to sacrifice that issue. They're going to say, okay, we'll compromise on this issue if you give us, you know, a greater percentage of the BPI. So it's just, to me, it's always going to be a non-issue and the league is basically going to do what they want with it. I think it's kind of like a fake issue that recently has been bubbled up and maybe this is just me kind of reading the tea leaves again. Silver is kind of putting it out there and saying, yeah, we really need to look on this. Look at this. It's on the table, right? And so it's always going to be kind of on the table and then it will be something that the player union will have to like compromise to get a bigger share of the pie. Maybe somebody will come in and say, Sean, that's illogical because of X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. But it just seems to me like a, a non-starter because again, the players in the union will have to give up something to get that. They'll never do that because they're the ones that are already in the league. Why would they be negotiating for players that are outside the league that are coming in? Like just basic economics says, you know, that that will probably never happen and that they'll always ask for more money if they can give that up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. We'll close it there. I wanted to talk about more stuff, but we'll definitely do it another time. It's a long off season. <laughs> Thanks again for coming on, though. We really appreciate it. Of course, I am willing to talk about this stuff anytime. Sounds good. It's really good to talk to you, Javier. You're in Sweden, right? Yeah, I'm over here. Like, I think the the, the hours difference is like plus six with you guys and plus nine with one other of you in the West yeah. Coast. So yeah, it's like almost almost nine over here, and it's been a long day. So just doing this and before I go to bed, basically. Yeah, we really appreciate you fitting us in. We have a lot to talk about about the draft. Just to jump in right away, I want to hear from you your perspective on Markel Fultz heading into the draft, if he really is like a lot of people believe in a tier all by himself, you think he's that good right now? I think he's in, in that tier in this class. I'm not really sure if he's like at that level of the best of the best in terms of like number one guys in the last like five, six years. 
But like other mm-hmm. than that, like that's a topic for another day, right? We talk about it in in my draft specialized podcast, Watson Draft, like comparing him with the guys from the last yeah five six years, and we settle on him being at the same level as Ben Simmons more or less. So I I will say so, yeah. Like I think you can always be a bit let down by a guy, but I think he's like both the guy with the highest floor and the highest ceiling, and that's normally a good combination, especially when you're we're talking about a guy that is also that young. Yeah. A lot of people are really excited about him. I have a two-part question for you right now. First, I want to hear a little bit more about what makes him so great, the skills, and if there are any question marks regarding his game. But also, I'd love to hear more about your methodology in how you approach evaluating talent and assessing how teams perceive these players heading into the draft. I think it depends on at what point in the draft you are, basically. Like, if we're talking at the top, for me, it's more important to just, like, try to find the best talent available or find the guy with the highest ceiling that's easier said than done and all that. But, like, I think at one point, the narrative changes a little bit and you are drafting more or less for value or perceived value just because, like, even if a guy pans out to be better than another player, like, let's say that you draft a big in the late lottery and that guy ends up being a good, solid backup player, like, you could end up overpaying that guy and losing value in the process like we've seen with teams like Minnesota uh, paying up uh, Gorgi Dieng for example he's a good player he's solid for where he got picked but like I would prefer to pass on those guys all along I would even make the case that you are losing some flexibility used by getting those guys especially if they pan out and I would just prefer to take the risk on some guys that could bring more value even if they might mean nothing also down the road I think the draft is an easy way to acquire talent for teams and it should be used in that sense and as far mm-hmm. as, as Fultz, I think like the most important thing that he has, like he's a scorer in three levels, like especially in terms of like driving uh, and getting to the basket. Like he has like such a natural ability, and and he has really he's a really instinctful player. Like I think like he needs to mature his game, and like it's a bit rough around the edges still, but like, he has that those instincts to move around and to just like around bodies inside the paint. Like I think that's really difficult to have, uh, along with the type of athleticism and size he has. Like he's not the elite of the elite. Athlete, Athletes, but like he's the type of guy that also probably will like last longer just because like he doesn't need all that athleticism and will mature and have like a longer prime than other guys, let's say Westbrook or John Wall, that are better athletes, more explosives, but maybe don't have as much in terms of skill. In this draft particularly, there are a lot of teams with multiple first rounders. When you see that happen, does that change how you evaluate their strategies going into the draft? I think so, absolutely. Especially in the case of teams like Portland, for example, I think like it, you have to take into account that they have like a number of guys under contract already, like probably not going to have much more in terms of lots open for their roster. And you have to think about that in terms of development and how much you can actually take into into your team and develop at the, at the right rate. So you can stash guys, so you can move up or try to pack your picks together or even like try to dump some of your bad contracts into another team. Like all of that can add value towards the future and it's a team that needs some sort of luck to improve their ceiling as a, as a group. So like a lot of it depends on your payroll and the type of coaching staff you have also and how much you believe in them as talent developers because like if you are going to just get a guy and he's just going to be hovering around your roster and not be much, you just probably will lose that value from a first round pick and it will be a guy that will be just a waste. And like we have other examples. Like it's not only Portland, right, that has multiple firsts, like Utah has them and like they might 
have a similar issue in terms of payroll and in terms of like paying guys and having enough slots or having a super deep team. So like you can always try to make the case like in terms of other teams like Orlando or teams like Brooklyn that need to get as much talent as they need or even the Lakers that have that late uh, first from Houston. I think you should just try to pick the guy that could add more value on the road because it makes no much sense to add up talent to those picks to move up basically since you already are devoid of that talent is just better unless you get a really good deal it's probably better to take a chance on a guy that you like late yeah yeah i definitely hear you there i'm curious when you're evaluating these prospects or creating rankings do you tend to do a straight ladder type big board ranking or do you see more of a tier structure among the players in this draft i think like the most interesting thing about this is like you can take it from different angles at different stages of the draft. Like for me, I think at the top, especially the top three or even top five, like you should go strictly for potential unless you have like a guy that completely delineates your roster down the road, like a possibly a Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid if you trust those guys enough, or especially a Carl Anthony Towns or a Porzingis or even a Nikola Jokic for Denver down at 13th overall. I think those guys could be that. So you probably are intelligent if you are drafting around them a little bit. But other than that, I think at the top, you should go for the absolute best guy available or the guy that you think can be that under your circumstances and in your system with your coaching staff and with the guys you have around them. But like after that, like I said, I think I try to to do a team-oriented board. Like I will not give a guy a four slot overall in a vacuum unless he's somehow related to the team that is picking there. And I, I like the tiers just because they help me in terms of organizing guys, especially because I don't want to have a guy that is going to jump a whole tier. Like, I don't mind if in a vacuum I like a guy more than another, but for a team, I think he could bring more value just cause, because he probably will develop better there or will develop to a higher degree. I think it makes sense if you are making that selection in the same tier, but if you are jumping ahead and just grabbing a guy from a tier clearly below, I think that's a, a risk. The thing for this class is like, other than after fools and a couple more guys i have a huge open tier until like 11th or so and then after that is another big one so it's just difficult to delineate when you go deeper and deeper and you start liking less teams i think the strategy nba teams have for the most part like they probably try to rank as much guys as they want just because that helps in terms of organizing where you can find a guy down in the second round like how other teams uh, perceive these guys like that's something that probably helped the warriors last year to be able to draft patrick mccaw uh, when they uh, bought that pick from Milwaukee at uh, 38. So like that's something you ha- want to have, that type of intel. But I think teams going to the draft liking like around 15 guys. Like I don't think they really like more than that. It's difficult to find enough guys that you actually like as an evaluator in every class. And I think it's, it's important to have like that completely down, the guys that you want, the, li- the guys that you like the most at least. That's interesting that you say you have a relatively open tier after you get past faults. I think when we talk to others, they are a little bit more granular in the number of players they put in each tier. Yeah, I mean, it's just depending a ton. In like, I'm trying to get up and be done with my board in terms of at least the, the top 15 guys, like I said, or between 10, 15, even maybe I can go all the way to 20 that I like in this class or that I really like uh, for the future. It's probably closer to 10, if I'm being honest, but like, you just have to expand it a little bit just because people are going to ask for it. But like... Other than that, like I think down after that is more difficult to just be able to delimitate the limits and the and the barriers between tiers. And even in the top ten, like I would say that Fultz is clearly number one for me. And after that, I probably have Ball and Dennis Smith Jr. in a tier 
by themselves after faults, but then it gets murkier. Like I don't think after those guys, like between fourth and eleventh or between fourth and tenth, most likely, I think those six, seven guys are all of them more or less in the same level. Like I would probably have some guys ahead of others and like in, in a vacuum, sure you can talk me into that, but like I think it will get clearer and clearer whenever I try to actually build it uh, related to teams because in the end like even if a guy like there are some talents in every class like one two guys that are going to be stats regardless of where they fall but like most of the of the other guys is like everything is related to your context and how you get developed in the earlier stage of your career like I don't think guys like Kawhi or guys like uh, Clay Thompson would be the same if they fell into different teams and they are considered steals for the right reasons and they probably sh- like they should have been drafted earlier for sure and they could probably have been good players or like still good good guys and starters in this league but i'm not sure they will uh, reach the same type of uh, status and that's part of why like relating the fit or the ability to develop those guys to the slot where you pencil them in in your board makes sense for me yeah that's really interesting so you said that you have dennis smith jr in your second tier ahead of guys like josh jackson and jonathan isaac players that i think a lot of people are excited about especially on the defensive end We know Dennis Smith tied for the highest vertical in combine history. A lot of people are really excited about that athleticism. But there are a number of question marks about his game that we've been hearing about in recent weeks. How do you evaluate his talent going forward? And to what extent do you think teams are worried about certain aspects of his game? I mean, I don't have access to interviews and stuff like that. So I just throw all that out Mm -hmm. of the window. Like, I I just can't take it into account because, like, a lot of it is just smoke screens from uh, some guys come, some guys like representatives and stuff like that. They just want to get the stuff out there for the better of their clients or the worse of the clients just because they don't want to get drafted high by X team. So like I can't really deal with that. I know that he was like a bit of a character and a bit of a, a situation in NC State and all that. But like also that was a terrible coaching staff and a terrible situation for him with not more than another guy that could actually shoot the ball in, in Maverick Rowan, no more than another guy in in Markel Johnson that could actually dribble and he was like the, I don't know, the eighth or ninth guy in that roster. So it's just difficult for me to actually like blame him for that. Like you can mm-hmm. also be a bit worried for the injury and the knee, but he seemed to come back almost as at full strength by the end of the season in terms of athleticism. And I, I'm not worried about him being a good enough athlete. I think it's more about the size with him. Like he's, he's around 6'2", probably with like reportedly like has 6'5", wingspan for an Adidas Nation last year. Like I got some some guys that the, even if the measurements officially are like around 6'3", told us behind the doors that he was closer to 6'5", but like either way, he's not like huge and he commits, he has a lot of lapses defensively and in terms of intensity, especially of ball, in both sides of the ball actually, like you can see him ball, ball watching and stuff like that. So that's a concern. But what, what I like about him is like he has after uh, faults, I think the highest ceiling in this class is just related to his ability to score at all three levels. Like he can get to the rim, he can score in the mid-range and he can score from three as well. And I think his vision is underrated. Like He didn't play with a team that actually could open the floor for him in any capacity. His bigs couldn't finish either. It's just like way too difficult for him to create anything of the bounds. And for me, I believe in his shooting. Like For me, the capital part of this is that like I, I like how compact his release is, how natural it feels when he pulls up and he has like a really smooth mechanics like he's not like a two motion uh, shot or anything like that or anything weird like I think he's going to shoot it well at the next level and I like the indicators for him and that means that mm-hmm. you can play him off ball uh, at times 
And like uh, he doesn't have the automatisms or the like natural instincts to play off ball, like most point guards don't, other than like weird cases like Frank Nilikina or guys like that that are groomed in that sense because they are playing with professional players and they don't really get the ball, or even Lonzo Ball because he he shares that much. But like uh, in terms of like him being able to develop those things, like we've seen it with Kyrie Irving, like he's not a guy that is naturally. Uh, oriented to do that but like whenever he's playing with LeBron he tries to find the way so I think it all depends where he's growing and how he grows in his first years as a player like if he's growing in a system where he's groomed that way and he's brought up that way and he, they are able to use both his ability to create blended in with his ability to shoot and be able to play off ball at times I think his ceiling is up there and also we have to remember like it's just way too difficult to settle down and don't have enough creators on the floor like we've seen it with the finals and the, and the playoffs in general like you need to have enough guys that can actually do something with the ball in, the, in their hands, especially against these switchy defenses and all that. And like, if you only get a shooter around LeBron, like that's cool. But you need another guy that can actually do something to put another threat there on the floor for the defenses. And Smith can do that for a team while he can also shoot it. So that's that's part of the allure for me. That was a really good answer. I think you did a good job of emphasizing the importance of digging deeper. And sometimes the stuff that you see on the surface level isn't everything about the player that you need to know so it really that conveys to me just how important it is to watch closely these prospects I guess that's obvious but speaking of smoke screens it seems like there's a ton of that going on with Lonzo Ball do you have any theory on what may be going on as the Lakers do their due diligence and also what the likelihood of if they do end up passing on him higher in the draft if he could fall farther than we think and that could shake things up? I would be completely shocked if they pass on him and I don't think he falls farther than like fourth. I will I will bet mm-hmm. that if he doesn't get picked at two, he's probably going to get picked at, th- at three anyway. But like, I would say four, absolute floor for him. And I think like he's going to get picked second as well. Like, as long as theories, I think like the main argument here could be that the Lakers are trying to reinforce their like control over the selection. Like They are the ones making the pick. They don't want to give the narrative to the uh, Bulls family or anything like that. Or also it could be part of like Josh yeah. Jackson camp. Like I think that could be part of it as well. Like I, I'm not sure if Josh Jackson is actually getting any promise to get picked in the top third and the top three, or he's just like trying to make those uh, noises and make those signals to teams just to improve his stock. I won't be surprised if his stock is getting a hit and is falling a little bit. And that's why his camp is putting this out. I, those are my two main theories about this. I'm not really sure where is the truth here i don't know where it's coming from i'm pretty sure it's not coming from balls camp i'm kind of sure it's not coming from the lakers either i don't think it makes much sense unless they try to like i said put a uh, balls family in their place and try to make the case for them being the ones actually uh, p- uh, making the selection but i think it makes more sense if it's a guy like jackson or another guy that is just like trying to pump their value but like downgrading balls value and trying to just put their name out there a little bit and it was Jackson the guy that was rumored to have gotten a promise in the top three either Philadelphia or Lakers because he cancelled some workouts so I'm not really I'm just like a lot of smoke screens I wouldn't believe anything here I think uh, like 99.9% he's going to get picked by LA I would guess as we mentioned before you're joining us from Sweden you're from Spain who do you think are the best international players that we in the United States may not have seen much of yet in terms of both players who are expected to come over immediately next year. And also, as we mentioned before, with so many teams having multiple first rounders, 
people who may be expected to be targeted as draft and stash players. If you are talking about the strictly this class, like this is a weak international class, like a bunch of guys that I like withdrew their names from the draft this past week, like the 12th. And like that was a disappointment because I had a bunch of guys, like, I mean, not a bunch, maybe three guys that actually withdrew their name, especially two guys, actually, Rodion Skurux from uh, Barcelona B team that I think is an intriguing talent, but he's not anymore in the draft. Like he's not like an elite shooter or anything, but can do something more than shooters can off the bounce and with his dribble. And he can, if he improves his frame, be a, good enough defender. I feel like he's a bit weak still and he had some injury issues. And then Cyril Elessier-Banerot, a uh, forward from France. I, I'm pretty sure that he could have been picked earlier than people think. He's a big-time sleeper. I feel like, like he's the prototypical 3 and guy like with 6-8, 7-2 uh, wingspan can swing between the forward positions. But as far as the guys that are actually in the draft, I think other than Frank Nilekina, it's difficult to find guys that actually can bring much value right away. Like Most guys could be a stars uh, candidates and like most of them actually are bigs and I don't care much for bigs unless you are like like an outstanding pro- uh, prospect and like the guys that are all here like Paseknik is the same country as Porzingis and he's more or less the most intriguing of that group for me and since Paseknik plays from Gran-, Gran Canaria in Spain I have had the opportunity to watch him enough like he's the prototypical finisher around the basket like he has really good instincts to be a role man and he can also pop up a little bit and stress the floor while being a I think he has some ceiling as a defender just because of his height and, and length. Maybe he's not the uber mobile guy that some other guys are in this league just because he's like 7-2 or something like that. But I think he has ability and he could be a guy that you could stash. And then Nilekina is like the biggest prospect out there for sure from that group. Like I, I have him in terms of absolute upside, like if you are considering what, what he could be down the road just because he's like the second youngest player in this class. And if he adds strength and the strength develop into athleticism, this is all projections. Some, some people are not fond of it just because you can run into mistakes. But I think even his floor is high enough to consider him in the top five or definitely in the top 10. I think he can be a nightmare defender just because of his length and the ability he has to read the screens and be able to get skinny around pick and roll coverage and stuff like that and be able to fight his way through even with his slender frame. And like he has the pull up, he has the ability to shoot the ball. Like he's not an elite creator, but like like I said before, like he's a super young prospect. Like if you think about like Damian Lillard, for example, like they are not similar at all, but like Lillard got to be a maestro in the pick and roll because he ran it all over at Weber State for four years. Like he was probably the age Nilikina was when uh, is when he started as a freshman there. Like you can't really judge these guys just because they haven't had the opportunity to do much. And he was playing basically as a two guard for his team at, over at France, like not getting much of a responsibility with the ball in his hands. I think he's basically the most intriguing talent we have had from Europe in a while other than bigs, like in terms of perimeter guys, for sure. I think Doncic next year is probably even a more interesting guy, but I expect him to get to play a bit of a four-man role as well in the league, the way things are going, if he grows a bit uh, a bit in his frame and gets a bit bigger and all that and longer. So like, I just probably will say Frank Paseknik as a big that can have some ability and you maybe are able to stash it a couple of years and get him down the road. And then other than that, it gets pretty dicey. I'm not really a fan of any of the other guys that are still in this class and they the ones I like the most probably with you. So it's just a bit difficult to find European prospects in, in this class, honestly. While we're on the topic of international prospects and stepping away from this draft class specifically, are there any previously drafted players that have been stashed that you expect to come in next year and make an immediate impact? I mean, it all depends on the contract situations. Like, I do like Sadie Osman, that is the stash for the Cavs. I think he could make a 
reasonable impact for another team. I'm not sure how much of playing time he will get for Cleveland, although I think he's the type of prospect they need. Like He's sort of a 3-and-D guy that can actually play multiple positions and can defend different guys. He's not like an elite stopper, but he's going to compete. He He's a bit skinny, and he probably needs to develop a little bit there. But like other than that, like he has a smooth jumper. Like He's not an elite shooter, but he can stroke it, and he's not as raw as other 3 and D guys are in terms of passing the ball or being able to, to get some stuff uh, going off the bounce. I think he can like do something there as well. So he's one of the most interesting ones I, I think are out there. Like other than that, I think Adam Hanga, who played for the Spurs and got drafted a few years ago, like he's not like a recently draft guy. But like he's basically Andre Wadala lead over Europe. Like he's basically that version of a player in Euroleague. I don't think he's going to be nearly as good as Iwadala is for the Warriors, but he could play a similar role for the Spurs or like even get some of Manu Ginobili's role if Ginobili decides to retire next year. I think he's an interesting guy that could play right away in that rotation and fits really well with, with the Spurs that do. He could be a was-up version of where, uh, 30 whatever age Iwadala is right now, kind of. like He's not going to be as athletic as prime Iwadala, but I think he can be an interesting player in that role. And other than that, no many more come to mind, but I'm probably forget forgetting some uh, bigger names that are out there just because, like, most of the guys that get the stats are, like, big guys that just tend to be forgotten over here. Like, Milutinov, that is another stats from the Spurs. He played for Olympiacos last year. And he's an interesting guy. He could be developing a similar role as a splitter had over San Antonio. Like, he's a mobile big that can actually suit it a little bit. He's intelligent playing off ball and uh, getting advantage of situations that are created for him and his discipline on defense. So he can play a role, but like th those are not the type of guys that really entice me. Like if you come over the situation in Europe and you think about like which guys actually can get a playing role in the NBA, like there are no many wings and the NBA need wings. And like most of the wings are under somebody's rights. Like Boyak Bogdanovic that is probably the best wing in Europe. I don't really know if he can play a starting role for a good team in the NBA. Like he's sort of, of a wing creator that can do some stuff with the ball in his hands, but also can stroke it from deep and has a lot of confidence and he's a competent defender, but like he's not a stopper. I guess for Sacramento, he can start for sure. But like if you're trying to think about a team that is actually doing something serious in the, in the league, I think he strikes me more as a probably a backup guy. And there is some guys that don't have any like no one drafted them and I'm interested in, in the possibility of them coming over but especially they are bigs like that's the thing like that's why I will probably drop most of the bigs unless you are desperate for help there like if you are drafting a big that you know doesn't have a chance to play in like important minutes in the, in the playoffs or anything like that you sign a cheap guy from Europe like there are guys that haven't like had a good career in, in the NBA that are actually developed in Europe and with the new revolution around their games like they got over Europe at the right time and then the NBA changed and now they could feel like guys like Anthony Randolph although he just resigned with Real Madrid but like he, he's playing basically a f the center role for Real Madrid or even power forward at times but like he could play backup center for you in the NBA like Chris Singleton that was a pick for the Wizards a years ago also same story like guys like Ekpe Udo that played for the Warriors before at Milwaukee same story like he was trying to get play at the four when he first got drafted and like he's clearly a five and now he fits in that role so I think there are enough guys that you don't need to draft this raw and inconsistent bigs that we have in this class and it's just better to try to put your money or your resources elsewhere and even sign one of these more seasoned guys that are over Europe and that can probably make an impact for you sooner rather than later. Yeah, that was a nice trip we just took to Europe. Back to the United <laughs> States really quickly before we close out. I wanted to ask you about the non-freshmen coming out of college. 
in North America because you look at mock drafts and they're full of freshmen. But are there any non-freshmen? Who are some of the non-freshmen, I should say, that you're most excited about in this year's draft class? There are a few, actually. It's surprising to me. I mean, of course, the top nine or top ten, they are mostly freshmen. The, the first guy that is not a, an underclassman, well, are, he's an underclassman, but he's not a freshman. Uh, he is Donovan Mitchell from Louisville, like combo guard. I would say shooting guard more than combo, than combo guard. I don't know if he can do much more of in a creation role, but you can have him probably as a fake point guard if you have a forward that can actually create some for you. I think he deserves to be picked in the 9th to 11th, 12th range. Like he can defend and he can shoot. I think his mechanics paid out down the end of the season. Like he was developing them during the year and he didn't feel as comfortable. Maybe his numbers and his percentages weren't as high. He was also playing a Louisville team with not much shooting overall. And like they didn't really run sets in an intelligent way. I, f- I felt like like the offense is a bit stagnant over there. And they didn't have much in terms of like guys that can actually do stuff with the ball in the front court. But like he's a guy that competes defensively, can cover for ones and twos. He has the frame and the length to even be able to cover some threes that are non-threats, like guy, a guy like Norman Powell does for the Raptors at times. And I think he's like the the most interesting guy of the group, but like other guys like P.J. Dozier from South Carolina, I think if he ever shoots, like that's the concern with him and he's a a guard, like a 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, maybe, guard that can play some three as well. But he has, like, the elite package as a, as a perimeter defender that you want, like, with super quick, strong, he's physical, he has length, like, he has instincts defensively. He played for a stack in South Carolina team that made it for, to the Final Four and, like, basically on defense. And then his uh, teammate, Sindarius Stonewell, as well, he's not going to be as much of a scorer that he, that he was for the Gamecocks, but like he's more or less a 3 and prospect that you are, a, again, concerned about him shooting. But like the most important part of these prospects is if they actually defend. And you can see with Thorwell, like he's super advanced in terms of reading schemes from the other team and being instinctual or being able to actually command the defense. Like things that you see doing Draymond Green at times, quarterbacking the defense of his own team from behind or even uh, like whenever he's on the strong side or like being able to rotate and things like that. Like I think Thorwell can do all that. Like he's more of a two but like he's also a strong guy that can probably cover some threes. But like those are mainly the guys. Anunobi from Indiana is an interesting prospect, but like he's a bet again, like he's robotic and a bit raw. But like if if anything pans out for him, like he's going to be at least an individual defender that is going to be able to lock people up. So like it, it, we've seen guys like that made a career in the league, like Tony Allen or Mbamute or things like that. So maybe a guy that you can consider as well. And then George Hart would be the last one that I, I will probably highlight, the senior guard or forward, uh, whenever, whatever you like it more, from Villanova. He's probably not going to be, again, like Thornwell, not as good as a scorer at the next level, but like he can still be useful in offense because he can shoot the ball. Like He's not an elite shooter, but he can shoot it enough. And then defensively, I like his instincts. Like He's not like his overall quickness is not there and like he's not an explosive athlete or anything like that but he competes and he will rotate and he's an intelligent defender I like how he anticipates plays and stuff like that so I think as a rotation player on the wings like he's a guy that you should probably draft in the top 20 even though like some people even I think draft express I haven't read the last actualization but like in the previous one they had him like down in the second round or anything like that like I don't even know like why people think so many bigs are going to get drafted ahead of guys like this because teams in the NBA don't even need those guys anymore like there is no place for so many bigs with teams drafting in the latter part of the first round so I will bet that some of that is going to get shaken up and, and some more wings are going to go ahead of these bigs that are mock in that range 
Well, Javier, thank you so much for all the information you've given us. I think we'll let you go now. It was a pleasure having you on. No, thank you guys. And anytime you, you need me again, or if you want to do a recap for the draft whenever it's over, I'm here available for you guys. For sure. Thank you.